Welcome to a new episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we talk with ethicist Jason Thacker about engaging artificial intelligence. The explosion of AI tools like ChatGPT has led to both grand visions and grave concerns about the future. In this conversation, we seek to define the terms and seek biblical direction for our anxieties, hopes, and tech practices. And if you've wondered what to make of it all, we hope this episode gives you a good place to begin. As always, thanks for tuning in. When I turned 30 years old, I wanted to do something to challenge myself. So on a whim, I signed up for an expedition to hike the Incan Trail to Machu Picchu. I trained for the trip, but even so, I was not ready for how difficult the trek would be. One part of the trail included something like seven miles of stairs, pushing me to my limits. Nevertheless, the four-day journey by foot made it all the more satisfying to arrive at the Sun Gate and view that ancient wonder of the world. There was, however, another way to the top. A train. It allowed visitors to skip the trek, the training, and the seven miles of stairs. There were plenty of people who did, and to be honest, if I were to go today, 12 years later, I would probably take the train too. I have nothing against trains or other sorts of machines like cars or planes if the goal is just getting there. My point in telling this story is simply to point out that the experience of climbing a mountain is qualitatively different when you go by foot as compared to when you go by train. Both ways accomplish the task of getting there. But the slow way, the more difficult way, the less efficient way, invited me to become a different sort of person in the process. A machine might have got me to the goal more quickly, but it would not have activated my humanity physically, mentally, and spiritually, in the most formative ways. We might draw an analogy to any use of technological magic. The question is not whether technology accomplishes a task, but whether it activates or diminishes our humanity along the way. This, in part, is the argument of ethicist Jason Thacker. If intelligence is mostly a matter of completing tasks, he says, then it creates a crisis when machines can do it faster. But if to be human is more than a matter of efficiency, then perhaps AI invites us to consider how our use of these tools could activate our humanity rather than reduce it. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Jason Thacker. I'm joined now by two friends. The first is co-hosting with me for a second time, Jessica Joustra. She is professor of theology at Redeemer University and also a former guest interview. Go listen to her interview with her and Rob, her husband, about Kuiper Stone Lectures. It's a really good episode. Uh, but Jess is also a friend uh, of the podcast, of In All Things, uh, a friend of mine from graduate school. And so it's really great to have you hosting with me again, Jess. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Our feature guest this episode is Jason Thacker. Jason serves as assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at Boyce College. He's director of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the author of several books on technology and ethics, the lead drafter of 
artificial intelligence, an evangelical statement of principles. And so we thought, who better to help us think through the tricky issue of artificial intelligence? So Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, y'all. So Jason, you've been working on AI for a while, but AI is increasingly on the radar of non-tech savvy people, uh, not least because of tools like ChatGPT, at least professors uh, are having to reckon with it. I'm having to think through my syllabi and my assignments in all sorts of new ways uh, this semester. But in one of your books, you start by pointing out that AI has been everywhere, even if we don't recognize it. And so maybe start out to help us just notice some of the ways that our world has already been shaped by and the way that we already are using artificial intelligence tools in our everyday experience prior to all the new, uh, the new tools. You're exactly right, because until about last year, most people kind of always could keep AI at arm's length. We always thought it was kind of a far off issue. Maybe we should think about it. That's cute that you're kind of working on those issues. But by <laughs> and large, let's focus on the things that really matter, not really understanding that we were already surrounded by this technology for years now, for decades. This is not a new field. This isn't something that came out in the early 2000s and we're starting to reckon with it. Really, artificial intelligence in its kind of early form really goes back even to the 1950s, hmm. even when the term is first coined. And it's interesting, we've kind of seen these highs and lows, these what many will call AI winters, where there wasn't a lot of development, there wasn't a lot of excitement. We kind of hit the 2000s and things started to really take off. A lot of that came just down to the amount of data we had access to, especially with the internet and social media and uh, a lot of data collection and privacy issues surrounding that. But then also with computer power, we had faster and better and stronger computers. I mean, we look at like our iPhone now. I remember growing up, this my iPhone is doing much more than my little 286 PC could have ever yeah. done <laughs> early on in the 90s type of thing. It's We have just this exponential growth in power, exponential growth in process processing, as well as an exponential growth in data. And what's really, really fascinating is that uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's the famous kind of Googler computer scientist, once wrote in a book, he said that if tomorrow our AI systems all decided to wake up, uh, which is this kind of sci-fi futuristic singularity, we can get there if, you, if we want to go there mm -hmm. uh, in the conversation. But that idea of all of our systems decided to wake up, he's writing this back in like 2008, says essentially our entire society would stop. Everything would grind to a halt. We couldn't communicate with one another. We couldn't get money from the bank. Manufacturing would halt. We would be vulnerable to all sorts of uh, uh, defense issues. We would our, our politics would grind to a halt. Why? Because these systems, in many ways, in rudimentary forms, were undergirding so much of modern technological life, we just didn't realize it. I think last year, everything started to shift a little bit. And so everyone's talking about generative AI. They're talking about these technologies. And a lot of the questions that are being raised today really aren't all that new in many ways, because we're asking some of the age old questions we've always asked as humanity. We're just asking them in some and often in light of these new opportunities before us. Yeah, it's fascinating that answer, because I picked up your book, The Age of AI, which you wrote before this sort of AI boom. And I thought, oh, well, maybe this will be kind of outdated. But I found it just really perennially relevant. Uh, in, in terms of exactly what you just said, even as the tools change, the questions we're asking about it uh, sort of remain the same. Uh, before we get to some of those more interesting questions, I thought it'd be helpful just to define some terms. Yeah. Uh, and maybe I'll give you a set of terms and you can give me a short description of, of what they what they mean or, or why they matter. And one of those is going to be the singularity. But uh, first of all, just 
what makes intelligence artificial? So intelligence yeah. versus artificial intelligence. And it's a really important place to start here because often I think, especially in our kind of fast paced, efficient, convenient technological environment, we want to jump to the solutions rather than slowing down and asking some of these fundamental questions. And some of it's just defining our terms. It's interesting, even the conversation around artificial intelligence is uh, increasingly uh, debated even. Are these machines truly intelligent? And um, the idea of what about human intelligence and what makes these things different, but artificial intelligence generally defined is the sense that um, uh, the ability of a machine to perform human-like tasks. Mm. Now, that sounds really basic and rudimentary, but it's also very deep as you think of a machine that's not just augmenting some of our abilities, but maybe taking on some of those decision-making abilities or creative abilities or writing abilities. Often, especially prior to the last few years, it was a lot more like job automation. We saw this on manufacturing lines. We saw this in like a thermostat on the wall, or uh, I won't say it because one of our devices will probably light up and start talking <laughs> to us, but all of these AI-based assistants, anything that's considered a smart technology with smartphone, smart whatever, is utilizing some form of artificial intelligence. And so again, it's just the ability of a machine to perform a human-like task. The crazy part and kind of the part that is caused some uh, tension and also a lot of fear uh, today is that these machines are becoming even more advanced. They're doing things far surpassing even some of our wildest dreams and abilities of communicating with us or producing voluminous amounts of text or creating video and art and all sorts of different things that are kind of uh, shaking us a little bit. And I think there's a reason for that, actually, from a Christian kind of theological and ethical perspective on why that's the case. Mm. But it's shaking us a little bit to say, well, what's really unique about humanity if these machines are doing all of these things? But it's important to note that what we're focusing on here is what's called narrow AI. Mm -hmm. Narrow AI is the simple ability of a machine. It has a narrow focus, a narrow set of, quote, abilities in that sense. It's focused on a particular thing. And I always make the joke that uh, Siri on my phone, she can't do a lot of things, but she does a couple things really, really well. Yeah. That's kind of a good illustration is that these machines often have a narrow focus. They can change the temperature, drive the car, answer an email, you know, create a video or a piece of art. But they're not doing a whole host of kind of general generally intelligent uh, abilities. So much so that even my five and seven-year-old kind of outpace AI in miraculous mm. ways across the board, even though these machines outperform them and even me or us mm. in a very particular skill set that it's been trained on. That's narrow AI. That's the only type of AI we've ever heard of, we've ever created, and that we even think we can create. A lot of people at least will argue that. Then there's this sense of general intelligence. So you have narrow and general really the only generally intelligent being um, in the entire universe is humanity. So in some sense, you can kind of equate general intelligence with human level intelligence, meaning we take a, a skill set we learn in maybe one area and apply it to a host of issues, a, a host of problems. Um, and it can account for a lot of variables. A lot of times, and something I know my wife and I wish we had was a clothes folding robot, <laughs> uh, utilizing AI to fold all these clothes, these mountains of laundry yeah. that we have sometimes in our house. And the interesting thing is, it's very difficult for these machines to do that. They can't account for variables. They can't account for the towel being just off-centered a little bit or folded or wrapped up or twisted or whatever. 
Hmm. So it's very interesting the problems that AI can solve or even robotics can solve, or the machine, the things that it really isn't skilled at yet. But general intelligence would be kind of a wide ranging, like human like intelligence. Mm -hmm. Then you, this is where things start to get kind of sci-fi and futuristic. This idea, can we even achieve human intelligence? I think is a very operative question that we need to be asking. Um, I have some distinct opinions on that about what we can and can't, uh, what we will and will not be able to create. But the flip side of that is this idea of like super intelligence. And the difference between a generally intelligent machine and this idea of super intelligence is this moment of singularity. It's where machines are not just mimicking and imitating and maybe, quote, generally intelligent, but they start to sur far surpass humanity. There's a breaking point, mm -hmm. kind of a horizon that we see over. And that's where everything changes, because now we have gone from a, quote, human level intelligence, which we're again, we're not even sure is possible to create philosophy of mind, religion. There's lots of questions here. But that super intelligence is almost like God level intelligence. It far surpasses humanity. It's not only creating and crafting, but thinking and planning and organizing. And it's something more like a godlike status. Now, I think it's very fascinating from a Christian perspective of that longing to create that, what that says about us as humanity and how God created us. And we can get to that later. But nevertheless, I think it's helpful to understand we're really in this era of this age of AI that's narrow AI. And we're not sure if we can ever surpass that. But these ideas of general intelligence, singularity, and super intelligence are kind of the future. And some people think it'll be five years from now, 20 years from now. Many say it's about 80 to 100 years from now. It's always fascinating, though. When I read this years ago, I don't remember exactly who said it. Um, but it's typically always 20 to 25 years, maybe 30 years away. And it's been that way since the 1950s, by the way. Mm. What's fascinating about that is this author, and I thought they were exactly right. They said it's just close enough that it feels real and obtainable, but it's far enough to weigh that no one will remember it when you're wrong. <laughs> and I, I love that. And I think that's probably a lot of where we are right now. There's a lot of hype around artificial intelligence. And for good reason, there's lots of pressing questions we have to answer. But I don't think we do, from, do, do so from a place of kind of an uncritical embrace or kind of this deep-seated mm -hmm. fear and anxiety. I think we can uh, engage these places from a place of hope as Christians mm -hmm. and being very realistic about the challenges before mm -hmm. us. Yeah, that's just an incredibly helpful introduction, Jason, to the broad contours of um, this big question around AI and a really helpful posture, I think, thinking through how do we not be uncritical, but also engage in a yeah. non-fear-based, hope-filled way and, you know, we, we know each other a little bit. We've talked uh, many times before. And one of the things that we've talked about, I wonder if that helps you get at this hope-filled, engaging posture. And that's our mutual admiration of the, the, uh, the philosopher-theologian Al Walters, who wrote, among other things, this wonderful book, Creation Regained, where he introduces these concepts of structure and direction. Structure, the way God designed and intended the world, and direction, the way it's oriented. You know, you've already hinted at the fact that these theological questions around AI are really important. And I wonder if we can get started by thinking through those terms. Do theological tools like structure and direction help us more fulsomely consider AI's advancements, how we should engage them? Do you think about questions like structure and attending to directions, both in how AI is made, but then also how we use AI in our day-to-day -day life and how we anticipate it continuing to, to be a part of our world. 
Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, in many ways, and I kind of hinted at this earlier, the questions that we're asking today aren't all that new. What's interesting is they're actually deeply philosophical and often very deeply theological questions yeah. that we're asking in society throughout society. Whether you're a person of faith or not, you're asking about this question of like, what does it mean to be human or questions of what is justice or what, how are we to live? This is a big question of ethics yeah. and our vision of the good life. We're getting into these kind of fundamental categories, which the scripture is more than able. It's deeply sufficient. And even more than sufficient to navigate these challenges if we slow down and think about it. And that's one of the things that when people say, like, what are, what are we supposed to do? How do we start to navigate this? I always have to remind us technology wants us to go faster, faster, faster. It's always about convenience and efficiency. And this is kind of influenced from the French sociologist Jacques Ellul, um, who's been very formative on me and how I think about technology. Even though I think he takes it a step too far, he pulled me out of this kind of tool-based mm -hmm. idea that it's just merely mm -hmm. this neutral tool. What's fascinating, when you even look at the scriptures, when you think about kind of the Christian, even philosophical tradition, we realize that nothing is truly neutral. Everything has uh, an inherent value, not only in how it's created, but even some unintended values. Uh, I have a good friend, Derek Sherman, who teaches at Calvin University. He's a computer scientist, brilliant guy. Uh, we have so much in common, and I love it because he's more of a computer scientist who really knows his theology mm -hmm. and ethics. I'm more of a theologian and ethicist and philosopher who knows a little bit about computer science and the technology. So we've paired really well mm -hmm. together. But he reminds us in a lot of his work that these technologies are value laden. And I like that because one of the things you're picking up there, even Walters, and this is kind of carried forth in terms of the anthropology debate of what it means to be human by like John Kilner, uh, the ethicist here in the States. And what he says is that we have an, as humans, we have an inherent dignity, almost like a structure, how God has created us. But we also have a destiny. We have a purpose and a plan and a direction of where we're heading. And I think those kind of categories help us to understand what technology really is. Mm. I always ask my students, I say, what is technology? 90% of the time, they give you examples of technology. What I'm asking is, what is technology? At its core, is it just a tool? Or is it something more than that, more like a culture in which we inhabit? When you look even at the scripture, the story, this meta narrative, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, it tells you that there was a beginning, that God created things. When we even think about the ways we create like God, but not exactly like God. But then the presence of sin. I was teaching my students just this week that when we think about Christian ethics, the centrality of sin and our depravity must play into how we think about and navigate these ethical challenges. Because not only are we not perfect, not only are we unrighteous and broken and do evil deeds, but the things we make are also not perfect. They're going to have maybe intended, but often very unintended consequences and outworkings. But there's this idea of a structure, but also a purpose. So you're realizing what technology is. In some sense, it is a tool, but it's also shaping and forming us. And it has that kind of directional element to it. And so that's where I think it's really fascinating when you slow down and ask some of these big questions, how not only operative, but central the Christian kind of theological and ethical and philosophical traditions play into so many of these categories and how it not only allows for the advance of these tools, but also hopefully a very ethical uh, kind of outlook on how do we navigate these tools in terms of their uh, the ways they're shaping and challenging us, but also the ways that they're changing our view of God 
how they're view- changing our view of ourselves as human beings, as well as the world around us. What is the world? How are we to use it? How are we to steward these things? And this goes back to so much of that influence from Walters and so many others that I think help us to get a holistic picture of what's going on in these debates, rather than just kind of focusing on the issue or kind of hot take of the day. Whatever is that really pressing question to step back and see the larger story, the larger paradigm and the larger questions being asked that led up to that. Yeah, I love that answer because part of the point you're making is that we have a tendency to design technologies in a way that mirrors and amplifies our pathologies. And I was talking to a group of people earlier this week and I said, oh, I'm talking to an ethicist on Friday about artificial intelligence. What shall I ask him? And somebody said something like, well, ask if the future is going to be more like Wally or Terminator. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, that's, that's sort of a good example of pathologies, you know, whether the pathology of, of laziness and being sedentary in one or violence in the other one. And so I'm sort of asking you that question of, <laughs> is it going to be more like Wally or Terminator? Uh, as a way of saying, we could overreact to this or we could underreact. But maybe there are some things that should be high on our list of concerns as we work with these technologies and begin to develop them, begin to use them, mm-hmm. especially if we do so uncritically. So what should we worry about uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence? As an aside before I answer that question, it is fascinating how our minds so often, the stories were told, how they shape kind of our perspective of where we're heading. So it's fascinating to me, especially in this AI debate, because before like November of last year, when ChatGPT was released by OpenAI, and it really kind of just... It's crazy the hype cycle that we're in the midst of. And we're still really in the midst of, but it was real, especially this spring, it was like wall to wall coverage on AI. Before that, I would say AI or talk about AI. And there were kind of two kind of ideas in the room. There was either this like, are you serious? Why are we talking about this? Or there was this like existential fear. Of, and what it was, was always put in forth in terms of these movies, very sci-fi, mm-hmm. Hollywood movie, thriller plots of what we thought the future was going to be like. And I just find that really fascinating because an aside as we talk about this is the way that the stories and images and even the stories we tell ourselves shape kind of our perspective of the world. And that's probably a whole nother podcast yeah. for another day. Oh, that's day. great. Yeah. But... I want to say, and it kind of maps onto this idea of what is really the ultimate goal and purpose in life and what's our ultimate problem. These are getting back to some fundamental kind of even worldview and philosophical questions even. But as we think forward, I want to say in some sense, it's kind of a mix of both. Like, and the idea is, is that there's not just this kind of um, deep-seated fear, I think, that we should have, especially as Christians. We know the end of the story. I always tell my students this, and they always think it's funny, but it sounds so simplistic, but it's so powerful if we really slow down and think about it. Jesus is alive. He is sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. He is alive. He is resurrected, meaning the end of the story is written. So this idea that we have this like deep existential fear of the future, mm-hmm. it's held in our Savior's hand. He knows the answer. None of these things are surprising him. None of it's catching God off guard. Not He's not like, oh man, what did they create now? I really don't know what to do here. He is the sovereign God. Mm-hmm. And even Reformed theology helps us to have that idea that God, that we are finite beings, and that God is infinite. That creator-creature divide helps us to frame up some of these things to know God is still on the throne. God is still in control, meaning the end of the story is written. So it's not that I kind of look towards it of this kind of uh, everything's going to be great in the end type of thing. So everything's getting better. 
or everything's just going to kind of hell in a handbasket and everything's falling apart. What are we going to do? We just have to panic. Is that we have this kind of eschatological hope that we can embrace the world as it is, not as we want it to be or we wish it to be, but as it really is, navigate these questions, but do so from a place of hope and that peace that we have in Christ and how he calls us to live. And how does he call us to live? What is the central central idea of Christian ethics? Jesus gave us that. He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. This outward-directed love, recognition of who God is and how who how He's created us and how He calls us to love others as ourselves, reshapes the whole paradigm. So the central question I think that AI not only raises, but also one of the central concerns that we need to be focused on, especially as the church, is how are we developing, creating these tools, but also how are we deploying them and using them in ways that amplify and magnify our love of our neighbor in terms of human dignity? Or withdraw, or we seek to dehumanize our neighbors. Are we seeking to take advantage of our neighbors? Are we seeking to treat people as just a, a mere means to an end? Or are we treating them as ends in themselves? A very kind of Kantian notion there. Hmm. So I say that to say that this central question, I think, is this question of what does it mean to be human? And how are we seeking to love God and love our neighbors ourselves as we mag- as we kind of hold up this concept of human dignity and letting that be the paradigm from which not we only not only we create these tools but also use them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting so much of the AI ethics conversation today surrounds these kind of often very ambiguous kind of principles of freedom and justice and autonomy and all of this and but it's interesting a lot what undergirds so many of those cultural values today is this concept of dignity, this concept of human uniqueness. And one of the reasons I think we're in the midst of a lot of uh, either uncritical embrace, but often a lot more fear and anxiety, is these machines are doing things that we once thought were solely reserved for humans. Hmm. They're changing our perception and they're challenging these preconceived notions of what we assumed it meant to be human. Um, And I think that there's not only from the scriptures gives us a different answer sometimes if we slow down and ask, it's more of a status, it's more of the who we are, kind of getting back to that structure question that Jess asked, it's a little bit more of who we are in this status rather than basing our value on what we do. And if we get that paradigm mixed up and we equate value, dignity, and worth based on our output and based on the things we do, AI is very scary Mm. because it will outperform us if it's not already. But when you start to realize what it means to be human is how God created me, who I am as an image bearer, not what I do. I think it reframes the whole conversation, helps us to see these are tools, but they're value laden tools. Mm. They're shaping and forming us as we use them, develop them. And we need to be very aware of the ways we adopt these technologies into our life because they are changing our perspective of the world. Yeah, that's a really helpful framing, again, of potential worries and the real worries that we hear about with AI and places that we might celebrate uh, what AI can do as a good gift from God. Yeah. Um, As you talk about AI as a value-laden tool, as all tools are, it makes me think of that little adage, if you have a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. Uh, And you've talked already, too, about the ubiquity of AI. AI is all around us. So if we have AI in our hand, everything looks like whatever the AI version of a nail is. And I'm wondering if you can help us think about the places that AI is really well situated as something that we both ought to have hopeful but critical eyes to see, but also 
that we can celebrate as a good gift from God in the ways that mm-hmm. it is part of this grand story of God's good gifts to us. I'm wondering if you can help us think about ways that, especially this current generation of AI, I'm thinking of things like generative AI, like ChatGPT, what is it especially well-suited for? How is it the right tool for the right job? What are, what are the jobs that it is really good at that we can use it well in? I love that you brought up that adage, when you when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Marsha McLuhan, who's kind of the media ecologist and really helps us to understand what media is and how it's forming and shaping us. He has that famous line of you know, the medium is the message and how the medium shapes our message and our, how we communicate with one another. And you saw this with others as well at Neil Postman. We kind of update that in terms of the technology. And it's not just when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but a good friend of mine, Jacob Schatzer, who teaches at Union University, wrote in a fantastic book that was well ahead of its time called Transhumanism in the Image of God. And in that volume, Schatzer asked the question, he says, it's not just when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. He said, it's when you have a smartphone with a camera, everything looks like a status update. Mm. And that just shocked me. It kind of hit me. And I was like, oh, that's a really good way to think about it. The way that these technologies, all technologies, including AI, are value laden, not only from their creators, but often these kind of subliminal, often unconscious values that are uh, coded or encoded or the ways these, not they, they don't take on their own life per se, but they often have unintended consequences that maybe the creators never thought that that would be used in that way. But because of the proclivities of the sinful human heart, we find ways to use and abuse these tools as we seek to lord power and authority and control and to make everything about ourselves. But that idea of like, what is it really good for in some ways? It's fascinating because it's made our life very convenient, whether it's finishing out an email, whether it's, um, you know, changing the temperature in my house, making things cooler or hotter. Sometimes it does a really good job. Sometimes we wake up in like the middle of the night sweating because the AI decided to change it for some reason and we're not really sure why. But it's interesting how convenient our life has become, especially in this kind of smart era or the Internet of Things, IoT, we often hear about. So there's lots of convenient factors to it. Some of the dangers, though, is interesting with the debate over AI is I find it fascinating that one of the things we question with AI is, can it be human? We almost seek to humanize these machines. And I wrote about this in the age of AI, how it's really ironic that that's happening because at the same time we're questioning, can these machines be human or are they human or are they going to gain consciousness and all of this truly intelligent? We're dehumanizing ourselves. So what we're doing is we're looking at these machines and seeing these, quote, human characteristics and abilities and questioning of what's its status. At the same time, we treat ourselves often in a very mechanistic, naturalistic framework is nothing but matter. There's nothing special or unique about us. And when you dumb us down and you make these machines, it's very easy to draw kind of conclusions about making them the same thing, or maybe we're going to create something bigger than us. And I think that that kind of gets some of that story mixed up and kind of a misinterpreting of what Genesis is really telling us about humanity. But I think with uh, generative AI in particular, I think there's a lot of helpful tool-based approaches. I found it helpful in doing a little bit of research initially. I was I found where I was wondering about a concept and a person and some other ideas. I asked the machine, I asked ChatGPT, it gave me an output. It wasn't fantastic, but it was a starting kind of a jumping off point in some ways. But, and I have to say this as one who works in academia and one, maybe my students are even listening to this, you can't cite that. 
But not only can you not cite that, but you can't trust it. And the reason you cannot trust you can't trust it is because you don't get the same output, especially in these generative AI systems. If you give it the same prompt, you don't always get the same results because it's doing it on the fly. It's very predictive. Actually, it's very boilerplate. It's very um, basic. There's not a lot of advanced kind of creativity to it because what's it doing? It's taking a host of data and compiling what it thinks is the most likely result. So it's very generic in some sense. But I think it can be helpful and kind of a jumping off point. I've even toyed around with using it actually in our classroom to ask a question. Like one of the te- classes I teach is what is, a, uh, what is worldview analysis? And we ask, what is a worldview? Well, I could ask the system and it could give us a definition and then cl- the class can dissect that and critique it in many ways. That could be a helpful way to kind of push us along a little bit mm-hmm. to help us develop those critical thinking skills that I think are uniquely human. Uh, that are a little bit different than what this machine does. And I think that understanding of what these machines really are, that they're objects, they're machines, they're not subjects like we are, that paradigm for uh, that subject-object, I first read about it in Robert Spayman's book called Persons, which he has the best subtitle of a book on uh, uh, humanity and persons called The Difference Between Someone and Something. Mm. That paradigm, I think, is rad- it radically shifts how we think about AI. We're not talking about someone in terms of a subject. We're talking about something. So I think there are some good uses of those tools. Obviously, we can use them in defense uh, things where decisions have to be made quicker than maybe a human can make them. They can, these systems are often picking up on errors in our own thinking um, in terms of consistency, pulling out or seeing patterns that maybe we miss for whatever reason, or even combing through countless hours of video data and picking up certain things that you know would take us a much, much longer time, but it's doing it very quickly. So the speed element, the convenient can be a big benefit, but the drawback is if we start to overly rely on these machines or always trust them to be correct. So it's not all good. It's not all bad. Taking a very realistic approach and a measured approach, um, I think helps us to kind of frame up what AI is and how best to use it. Yeah, we've mentioned students, uh, and I think probably because all of us teach students, and some of the listeners, many of the listeners on this podcast will be students or parents of students or uh, teachers of students. Uh, and I think one of the challenges is facing, what is it, how do we, how do we direct students well? And how do students uh, or younger people who are growing up with this always being at their fingertips confront these challenges and temptations that are inherent even as they recognize the the possibilities? One of the things I worry about is the sort of short-circuiting of the process of thinking. Um, So rather than using it as a starting point, it would replace the thinking process, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That just using magic or AI to think for you uh, makes you into a different sort of a person than to go through the the long process of wrestling with ideas. And so I wonder um, what sort of counsel you would have for two groups of people. First, to students uh, who are going to have access to tools that open up the world with possibilities that were not always uh, as ubiquitous. And then also parents or teachers who are are trying to disciple and who are trying to direct and guide um, students who now have all these tools at their disposal. Yeah, that question reminds me of something I wish I would have added to my previous answer with Jess about what what are these tools good for and what are they not good for? It kind of parallels into this question, Justin, as well, is that a lot of these systems are really good at information transfer. They're really good at giving us kind of just brute information, data, 
kind of an output in in many ways. But what they're very bad at and what they, um, you know, I don't think actually will be able to accomplish in many ways is that education, especially if we're thinking just in the educational process, my goal is not to download a whole bunch of information into my students. The goal is to not only develop those critical thinking skills, but see a transformation take place, see a holistic transformation take place. I would rather teach my students how to think, especially critically think, and to navigate so that they're cultivating these senses of virtue, character. So when they encounter new problems or new ideas, there's almost this instinctive kind of reflexive, okay, now I think I know how to navigate this, or there's almost something uh, instinctive, reflexive where they don't even think, they just act. And that's kind of this holistic transformation, which I think is very key to a Christian ethic about a virtue component to ethic. It's not just about rules, Mm. and it's not just about information. It's not just about brute facts. What it is is about this holistic transformation that takes place. So that kind of goes into what's it good for and what's it not. Maybe it's good for information transfer, but it's not actually very good at cultivating virtues. Mm. It's not very good at cultivating character. And a lot of the things that we actually want to see, especially in Christian higher education, but really education in general, the goal is to see a different type of person, a cultivation of those virtues, um, Meaning that when we think about how to utilize this in the classroom, per se, something I tell my students day one, I would tell my students to say, hey, when we're going through the syllabus, go to this one section and they're like, "Okay, you're going to talk to us about plagiarism and cheating and why chat GPT can't write our term paper. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) but pause. You are going to be stressed this semester. You are going to be overwhelmed this semester. You are going to feel like you have no other option at some point, whether it's a family situation, whether it's a situation with a roommate or the amount of classes you signed up for and the challenges and projects. You get sick. You have a family member. You have all these things going on in your life swirling around. You are going to be anxious. You are going to be overworked. You are going to be tired. And there is going to come a temptation for you maybe to think, maybe this is a short, I can short circuit. I can get out of it very quickly. And what I implore them to do is say, come to me before you go to the machine. Hmm. Because I don't, I, I would much rather you maintain your integrity and your character and get a little bit lower grade in our class. Maybe I'm a softy, but I'm going to work with a student who comes to me and says, look, I have X, Y, and Z going on, and I'm going to see whatever I can do to aid them. Because again, the goal isn't a letter grade. We, we often have, I think, even within the Christian church, this kind of deeply utilitarian mindset, even if we spiritualize it a little bit. The, the idea of it's all about the ends, it's all about, it's not about the means and how we get there, it's just about the ends that we achieve. We think of the goal of education often, even college education is, well, I'll get the right job, I'll get the grade on this paper that'll contribute to my grade at the end of the semester, and if I get high enough grades, maybe I'll keep my scholarship and I'll be able to graduate. Once I graduate, I'll get a family and I'll get that right job, and then we'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. And it's always about that next mountain that has to be climbed. But the goal of education isn't just a means to an end of a higher paycheck or nicer things or vacations, as all of those things can be good. The goal is that transformation. That goal is that holistic transformation. And even now I'm trying to incorporate it into my teaching so that they realize like, 
you know, Thacker's not scared of this stuff. He's not overwhelmed by this stuff. He understands it. He also under has taught us the limitations of these machines, mm. not only what it robs us in the educational process, but also meaning we can't always trust it. And so I ask it a basic question and it gets it wrong or they're like, I don't think that's a very good answer. And you're like, yes, you're starting to realize and understand these machines are going to only get, they're only going to get more advanced. They're only going to get better in that sense. But again, I can, how do I cultivate critical thinking skills and prioritize that holistic transformation over just an information mm. transfer? That's really helpful. Yeah, that is incredibly helpful. One of the things that you've talked about is about that question of what it means to be human and the way that AI really does make us ask some really important questions about what is human? What is intelligence, right? In the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about that word intelligence and how it says something both about the machine and then it says something about us. Um, And so all of these advancements in AI do bring up really important challenges across the board, but also as it, as it relates to humans, right? Things like reductionism, things like threats or promises of transcending the human. You talked about mm-hmm. transhumanism, things like that famous Turing test. And if you read your work, including the age of AI, uh, you'll tell us a little bit about that famous test fooling people into thinking that the computer is human as it replicates human responses. And so I'm wondering, in light of all of this, and you've given us hints throughout the conversation, and now you can just go free, uh, how, do, how do we think about what it means to be human full stop and human in this particular digital age? How can we take these really ancient theological truths that are perennially important and apply them to this particular question? Yeah. Well, you've really set me up, Jess, <laughs> because this is this is my one of the areas I'm most fascinated mm-hmm. by. Um, and one of the reasons it's actually kind of one of the primary driving reasons that I think we've seen so much angst and panic over AI. And my running theory, um, and I've been kind of developing this, I have a forthcoming work coming out uh, speaking about kind of the image of God, especially as it relates to technology and with AI. But it's interesting that when I mean, we've had AI for many, many years, and these systems have been very, very advanced. What's fascinating, though, is they were often very advanced. We were already starting to use them in very manual tasks, which is, you know, the idea, whether it's a tool that kind of, uh, which I think is that value laden kind of idea, is it shaping and forming us? When I repeatedly use a hammer over and over again, it develops certain muscles in my arm. Well, it's a very like manual process, but what's fascinating and I think very revealing actually about not only the church, but even kind of the wider society is that I think we've long assumed what it meant to be human was what we were rational reasoning creatures. And that's true in many ways. We are. We do have a high level of rationality. We have a high level of intelligence. We have certain uh, substantive elements. That's one of the kind of big family of views, as you all well know, um, within kind of theological anthropology is that we have this very substance, substantive view of uh, there's something about us, whether it's our language capacity, maybe it's a intellectual capacity, it's certain abilities, rational capacities. And I think those, that has long served us well. What's interesting, though, in the shift with AI is these machines seem to be mimicking many, if not all, maybe not all, but at least many of those capacities. Now, maybe not in the exact same way. I have to give uh, credit where credit's due, and maybe not in the same exact way, but it does seem to be mimicking and imitating those certain capacities. 
Another kind of view that's very popular throughout church history, especially in kind of the 19th and 20th century, is this relational view that we have the ability to have relationships not only with God, but with one another. Um, And that's not always, these aren't kind of three camps that I'm describing that are mutually exclusive. Often there's kind of a merger or pulling from each type of view, but for categorical sake, we'll say that there are three kind of primary views, that substantive view, a capacity and attribute, often intellect, reason, rationality, that relational component that we can create that relate or have relationships or capacity for relationships. And then this kind of very popular and very wise view, actually, where I have long been actually in terms of this kind of vice regency functional view that we represent God. We see this in terms of how God has called us to be stewards, how he's given us dominion and authority over certain aspects of creation, but under his authority. So we kind of are his vice regents. We represent him, all of which are very capacity oriented understandings of what it means to be human, all of which are very helpful. Each of those views, as many have long said, all suffer. There are some challenges that you can say, well, what if a human being doesn't have that intellectual capacity from accident, from birth, something more a relational capacity? What if a human being or what if a human being doesn't model the same way that other human beings model kind of that uh, functional aspect of the image of God? You know, each of those kind of are still, they're all kind of capacity attribute related. What's fascinating to me is as I went back to the scripture, as I started studying anthropology in depth, not just in light of the AI conversation, but I started to slow down and say, is it that the, is it, are we calling the attributes? Are we calling the capacities human? Is that what makes us human? Or is it something about being human that we tend to model those capacities or have those attributes? We may have them, we may not. I think of the pre-born child in the womb doesn't have that rational capacity. Peter Singer always comes into mind here because he says, you know, there are animals who have higher intellectual capacity than a pre-born human being. Thus, we should care about the animal. Maybe we can uh, dispose of or take the life of this child in the womb. You know, that idea that there's, they don't model or mimic the same type of capacities we have today. So if we base human dignity and human value on a spectrum of capacities and attributes, I think that's a dangerous recipe. We see that historically. That's a very dangerous recipe. So again, it comes back to, is it about the things we do or have the capacity to do, or is it based on who we are? And that's where Kilner and Spayman and so many others that have come up in this conversation really changed it for me. I was sitting at a, a Thai restaurant with a professor and he kind of pushed me and said, what is the image of God? And I said, it's almost like a status. And he looked at me and was like, yes, keep going. And I realized, at least for me, it kind of opened my eyes to realize that what it meant to be human was that it was this unique status that was bestowed or given to us by God. It's not based on the things we do, it's based on who we are, but who we are naturally flows into the things we do, meaning we will uh, magnify or we will model that status in our capacities, but it isn't the capacities that we're calling persons. This is Spayman's language. It's the person that we're calling a person. We have to realize that unchangeable, unalterable status. So that long theological anthropology lecture, what does that mean? for the conversation with AI. These machines have seemingly have abilities and capacities that are outperforming us, but that's not what it means to be human. Mm. 
what it means to be human is that we're an image bearer of the almighty God. And that's unchangeable. That's unalterable. We can't do anything about it. It's not going to change. So we as human beings, as we utilize these tools who very well will have already, this Turing test was passed very quickly after Alan Turing proposed it even, where a machine was very quickly being able to fool a human being and to think it was human. Today, we have machines that are outperforming, not only fooling, but I mean, just blowing our minds. We're like, I genuinely thought I was talking to a human being, or I genuinely thought a human being wrote this or created this, but they didn't. It was a machine. But it isn't about the things we do that don't define us. Mm. That's not where our value, dignity, and worth come from. It comes from that inalterable status of the image of God that we um, that we model and kind of see magnified um, out of those capacities and those attributes. So for me, when I'm thinking about what does it mean to be human and that center kind of concept that we talked about earlier with human dignity, that shapes the whole conversation about AI because we're, we, this is a thing. This is an object, not a subject. I'm distinctly human, not because of my attributes and capacities, but because of who and who God created me to be and how he created to me, me to be. And that changes my relationship with these machines. And so that's how I think is a helpful paradigm as we start to move forward is that human dignity is based on our status as the image, who we are, rather than just the things we do. Um, and I think that kind of helps to flip the script a little bit so that when we're crafting AI policies in schools or we're thinking about uh, federal policies or uh, technology policies, when we're thinking about navigating the big challenges and questions of privacy to data collection to the use and abuse and how do we use this in war and how is this changing the nature of work, we have this unique status of the image of God that informs and shapes all of those decisions and how we seek to love God and to love our neighbors or self, recognizing that dignity, value, and worth that's rooted in who they are rather than just the things they do. Hmm. Well, our guest has been Jason Thacker. He's the author of several books, uh, including The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence, and the Future of Humanity. He's working on other projects. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes to how you can learn more or follow him. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Original music on this episode is provided by The Ruralists. And to close out this episode, here's their song, Mother Mary, from the album, Trying. I Yeah, you have.